0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at Bethemanual.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at bethemanuel.org. We'll be looking at three related passages of your Bible, Exodus 2, Acts 7, and Hebrews 11. And we begin in Hebrews 11, where it says, By faith— Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Hebrews 11.23. The Torah does not say that his parents were not afraid of the king's edict. It says that the midwives were not afraid of the king's edict. Pharaoh's Pharaoh commanded the midwives among the children of Israel to kill the baby boys as they were born. He said, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Exodus 1, 16 and 17. So the midwives feared God and... The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to be afraid of God? The fear of the Lord is a biblical idiom meaning to believe that God exists and that he punishes sin and rewards merit. That is the essence of it. It does not mean to live in terror of God, as one might live in fear of an abusive husband or father or a ruthless despot. It means to believe in him to believe that he sees all of our deeds, to believe that our hearts are laid bare before him, and to trust that he punishes sin and he rewards righteousness. Punishment for sin might be doled out in this world, or the next, or even both. And likewise, the reward might be received in this lifetime, in the afterlife, or after our souls are returned to our bodies. But there will be reward. Reward and punishment is a concept that the authors of cheap grace have worked hard to strip from Christian consciousness, but it is very much present in the teaching of our Master and the writings of the Apostles. Contrary to the notion taught in Reformed theology that we are incapable of earning reward or merit, our Master Yeshua encourages us when we do our acts of righteousness to do them in such a way that we receive our reward from our Father in heaven rather than the esteem of men. For those who do their righteous deeds to be seen by men have received their reward in this world. The Master teaches us to do our deeds in secret so that our Father who sees the secret things will reward us. He also tells us to show hospitality to his disciples that we will by no means lose our reward. And he tells us that when we are persecuted for his sake, we should rejoice and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Likewise, the apostles insist that Yeshua's disciples will receive an inheritance in the world to come as a reward for their allegiance to the Master, the Messiah. And in the book of Hebrews, we read, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The Apostle John offers the same warning to the disciples, Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win full reward. 2 John one eight. Getting back to the story, the midwives feared God, who is unseen, more than they feared Pharaoh, who is seen, and for that reason, they disobeyed the king of Egypt. The Torah says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Because they feared God, God gave them reward. That's the story according to the Torah. The New Testament tells us that Moses' parents, Amram and Yocheved, acted under the same compulsion as the midwives. It says, And they were not afraid of the king's edict. It does not mean that they were not fearful of the consequences, that they were not fearful of the king's men discovering the child and putting the whole family to death. If they had no fear of the king, they would not have hidden the child or put him in the basket. Obviously, they were afraid of Pharaoh. Rather, they feared God more than man. The fear of God, displayed by Amram and Yocheved, displayed by the midwives who feared God more than man, reminds me of the Ten Boom family and numerous other righteous Gentiles who defied the Nazis and hid Jews, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who helped forge passports to smuggle Jewish people out of Germany. Why? Because they feared God. They looked to the Unseen One and they chose to obey Him rather than man. This is what our master teaches us when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who is able to destroy both the soul and body in Gehenna. Like the midwives, Yocheved and Amram placed their fear of God above their fear of man. As Rabbi Yochran ben Zakkai says, Would that we feared God as much as we fear man. That would be enough. Most of us fear man more than God. If we fear God as much as we fear man, we would not sin as if no one was watching. But Amram and Yocheved fear God more than man, though God is unseen. And that is the essence of faith in God, the conviction of things not seen. The midwives also had the conviction of things unseen when they feared the unseen God more than Pharaoh. Thus they acted on faith. Amram and Yocheved acted on faith. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The Torah says that Yocheved saw that he was good, Exodus 2.2. The sages offer some explanations, reminding us that Moshe was the name given to him by Pharaoh's daughter, not by his mother and father. He must have had an original Hebrew name as well. Rabbi Meir says his name was Good, Tov. Rabbi Yoshiyahu says his name was Good, Tovia. But the sages say, when Moses was born, the whole house was flooded with light, for it says, she saw that he was good, and in another place it says, God saw that the light was good. This last explanation about the divine light is based on the Hebrew, which says at the birth of Moses, she saw, ki tov hu, that he was good. And also at the creation of light, God saw the light, ki tov hu, that it was good. Thus God declared the light good, tov, and likewise we derive that she called her son, tov. The Martyr Stephen alludes to this explanation, which compares the light of creation that God saw as good with the birth of Moses. He says, At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. In other words, Amram and Yocheved saw that Moses was good because they saw him from God's perspective, a human being, a treasure, a good gift from God. Besides, every mother sees her child as good. When Joheved saw that Moses was Tov, she could not bear to throw away a perfectly good baby. He was nurtured three months in his father's home, Acts 7.20. Then she obeyed the letter of Pharaoh's law, if not the spirit of Pharaoh's law, by putting the baby in the Nile. Stephen's version of the story says, After he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own, And Pharaoh was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses grew up in the court of Pharaoh. The Torah does not tell us that he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, nor does it describe him as mighty in words and deeds. On the contrary, Moses describes himself as inarticulate. These are embellishments from Jewish lore and tradition. At a certain point, Moses sympathized with the plight of his people and tried to do something about it. How old was he when he did so? The Torah does not say, but the sages offer two opinions. Some contend that it was at the age of twenty, the age of accountability, because the Torah says when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. In Judaism, we consider a child, an adult at the age of twelve or thirteen, to acknowledge puberty, the beginning of the transition but at the age of 20, a person is grown up. For example, those under the age of 20 were spared the fate of the generation that perished in the wilderness. So that's one opinion. Moses was 20. Other sources report that he was 40 years old before he left the court of Pharaoh. I don't know why, but perhaps it's because, as Rashi points out, the Torah says he grew up twice. First, it says the child grew And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, Exodus 2.10. And then it says, when Moses had grown, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, Exodus 2.11. Whatever the reason might be, Stephen holds to this latter opinion. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, Acts 7.23. The book of Hebrews, however, holds to the former opinion. It says that Moses left Pharaoh's household when he was grown up, that is, after coming of age. The book of Hebrews, however, seems to offer the former opinion. It says that Moses left Pharaoh's household when he was grown, that is, after coming of age. According to the book of Hebrews, Moses rejected his adopted family and joined himself to his people, even in their slavery. Hebrews eleven twenty four 24 through 27 says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of the Messiah greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." Okay, this text raises several questions. First of all, where in the Torah does it say that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? It does not say that in the Torah. Here's what the Torah says. It just says in Exodus 2.11, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So the detail about him refusing to be considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter is an apostolic midrash a traditional telling of the story from the apostles. And we see a similar version in Stephen's presentation of the story. Here's how he says it in Acts seven twenty three through 25. He says, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. According to Stephen, Moses intentionally left Pharaoh's household to try to bring salvation to his people. And this helps explain the meaning in Hebrews 11 when it says, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of the Messiah greater wealth, Than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Okay, in what way did Moses choose to be mistreated with the Hebrews? And what is the reproach of Christ that he chose above the treasures of Egypt? It does not mean that Moses knew the gospel about Christ. We find the answer in the Midrash Rabbah, where a very similar tradition is preserved as follows It says, When Moses had grown up, he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. What is the meaning of, and looked on their hard labors? It means that he looked upon their burdens and wept, saying, Woe is me for you! Would that I could die for you! There is no labor more difficult than brickmaking, and he used to shoulder the burdens and help each one. The, The writer of the book of Hebrews and the Midrash Rabbah must have shared a common source or oral tradition. The Torah itself does not indicate that Moses went to work with the people. We are only told of how he saw their hard labor and how he smote the Egyptian. The Midrash Rabbah says Moses joined the people in their labor and even longed to die for them. This explains what the book of Hebrews has in view when it says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses might have chosen to retain his position of power. Instead, he stripped himself of his royal station, taking the form of a slave, being found in appearance as a Hebrew. He humbled himself even to the point of death because he considered the reproach of the Messiah greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of the Messiah means that he took on the burden and affliction and suffering of his people, willing even to die on their behalf. Like the Messiah, he chose to identify with his people and suffer for his people. That is the reproach of Messiah. Why did he do that? Because he believed it more valuable than the riches, the great wealth of Egypt. We sometimes see disciples in the Messianic Jewish movement unable to bear the reproach of the Messiah. They are not able to stand up under it, to be identified with him, because of the reproach from the broader Jewish people in Judaism. It's a well-earned reproach, but a reproach all the same. And under the weight of reproach, we sometimes see disciples buckle and cast off their allegiance to the Messiah. There is nothing new under the sun, and we should not be surprised when it happens. Some will stand and some will fall, and those who stand will stand because they choose to endure shame, embarrassment, and even mistreatment with the Master, rather than enjoy the passing pleasure of men's esteem. They consider the reproach of Messiah greater than the esteem of men. They are looking to the reward as seeing Him who is invisible. God will reward those who cling to the commandments and the testimony of Yeshua. Yeshua says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. Revelation 3.12 The Torah says, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren And looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. In Stephen's recitation of the story, Stephen explained that Moses believed God was granting them deliverance through him. He said, And when he saw One of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Acts 7.24 Preachers are fond of pointing out that Moses committed murder and was therefore a sinner like everyone else in need of God's grace. Without a doubt, Moses had human failings and imperfections, but the charge of murder is a little strong. Moses struck down the Egyptian while defending the life of his fellow Israelite. Saving someone from an attacker is not the same as murder. He killed the Egyptian, but he did so to save the victim's life. You shall not stand over the blood of your neighbor, Leviticus 19.16. This means you shall not idly watch him die while you are able to save him. For example, you must save one who is drowning in a river or one who is being attacked by wild animals or bandits. Rashi on Leviticus 19.16. Stephen explained that Moses struck down the Egyptian as the first act in his attempt to redeem Israel, and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, Moses appeared to the Hebrews as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, "'Men, you are brethren.'" Why do you injure one another? But the one who is injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? Acts 7, 26-28 Stephen alluded to the Messiah. And just as Caiaphas and his Sanhedrin had rejected the Messiah, Israel also rejected Moses when they said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Israel's leadership rejected Yeshua of Nazareth. But Stephen contended that their rejection of Yeshua did not discredit his messianic claims because the same thing had happened to Moses. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Acts 7.35 Like Moses before him, Yeshua called on the people of his generation to set aside baseless hatred, gossip, slander, hostility, fighting, and murder. He called them to repent so that he might usher in the final redemption. The Torah's version of the story says that, at this point, Moses realizes that the killing of the Egyptian is public knowledge and he is afraid for his life. It says, Then Moses was afraid. Surely the matter has become known." When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh, Exodus 214 15 Stephen's telling of the story agrees. At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, Acts 7:29. The writer of the book of Hebrews, however, objected to that literal reading of the text. The Moses of Hebrews 11 had no fear for his life. He was willing to suffer and die for his people. The writer of the book of Hebrews states that faith, not fear, motivated Moses to leave Egypt. It says in Hebrews eleven twenty-seven, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. The passage from Hebrews attempts to correct the notion that Moses fled Egypt in fear of Pharaoh. Jewish legend has Moses remain in Egypt get arrested, stand trial before Pharaoh. In one version of the story, Pharaoh summons executioners to behead Moses, but Moses miraculously survives the execution because his neck is turned to ivory. In another apocryphal fragment, Moses miraculously escapes from Pharaoh's prison when God opens the prison doors. Other stories exist as well. They all generally agree that Moses did not flee from Pharaoh, but stayed and faced him. He later left Egypt on his own accord. The writer of the book of Hebrews was of the same opinion. Because Moses had fixed his eyes upon the unseen God, he had no fear of Pharaoh. Rashi notes the discrepancy between the simple plain reading of the Torah, which indicates that Moses was afraid and fled, and the Midrashic heroic Moses who had no fear of Pharaoh. He explains that, according to the Midrash, Moses was afraid. Moses was afraid because he saw that there were evil men among the people of Israel, informers. And he said, since this is so, perhaps the Israelites no longer deserve to be redeemed. And when it says, surely the matter has become known, it means that previously he did not understand why the Hebrews suffered, but now he understood they suffered as as a punishment for the informers among them. Rashi points out that this is not the literal meaning of the text, it's the Midrash. Likewise, the epistle to the Hebrews seems to follow not the literal meaning of the text, but the Midrash, when it says, By faith he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Moses may have feared what Pharaoh might do to him, but he feared God more, and he went out of Egypt, in faith, trusting God, not just fleeing from Pharaoh. What have we learned here? We have learned that true and enduring faith places the fear of God above the fear of man. The fear of God is the belief in reward and punishment, and it includes the confidence that the reward from heaven outweighs the reproach we might suffer from men. This is true on a social level. Faith values the esteem of God more than the esteem of human beings. It's also true in the face of persecution. Those who fear God take risks on behalf of others, like the midwives, like Amram and Yocheved, like the Ten Booms. We have also learned that the fear of God chooses the path of self-denial and, if necessary, suffering and mistreatment rather than the temporary rewards of pleasure this world has to offer. The call of discipleship might mean choosing social stigmatization. It might mean choosing the path of exile and loneliness. But the fear of the Lord looks not to the immediate circumstance, but to the eternal reward. Faith weighs the reproach of the Messiah higher than the treasures of Egypt, because faith endures as seeing him who is unseen. And learn from me and find rest for your soul.